Good morning, everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Mike. I'm the discipleship director here. And this morning we are continuing in our summer playlist series where we are taking popular songs from really across the decades and unpacking them and hopefully learning from them. M music is universal. It doesn't matter the boundary, whether socioeconomic, age, education, ethnicity, culture, geographic location, whatever. Music has the potential to cross and connect them all. Concerning this universality, Michael Stipe, frontman of the alternative rock band R.E.M., said, I've always felt the best songs are the ones where anybody can listen to it, put themselves in it, and say, yeah, that's me. And this is certainly true of their song, Losing My Religion, which we just listened to. Prior to the release of their album, Out of Time, of which Losing My Religion was the designated single, the band had released six other albums and had a small but very loyal following. However, it was their seventh album that launched them into superstardom and an eventual global fan base, all thanks to the song Losing My Religion, as it became their most popular song by far and their only song to reach the heights that it did on the Billboard charts. To band members and studio executives alike, this was a very strange song to be a hit. It has no real chorus. The main instrument is a mandolin, something not normal for alternative rock bands at the time. And the song itself is in a minor key. And so all of these were markers, not necessarily for failure, but certainly not a global hit. But the band fought for it to be their single, as it was the most REM song on the album. And this decision to stay true to their nature as a band paid off because like any good piece of art, something about this song resonated with anyone and everyone who listened to it. Now, in the spirit of transparency, I'm, I'm not a huge music person. Um, I've, been, I've been judged for having my radio off by, by default when I start the car, Piper. Uh, now, I, I do, I enjoy music, but probably not to the degree uh, a lot of people do. When I listen to music, it's more for silence filler and surface level listening, rather than listening deeply to the intricacies of music and lyric and understanding on a heart level what the writer of the song poured into it. So needless to say, when I was first told that losing my religion was going to be the song I was going to be talking about, I thought, praise God, this is a gift. This is going to be easy. Judging by the title, it's all about losing faith. That is until I read the lyrics, which really give no indication whatsoever that it's about someone losing their faith. In my search for the song's meaning, I, I asked my dad, uh, a bigger lover of music than myself, what he thought the meaning was, to which he replied, I thought that was just a nonsensical song. And when you look at the lyrics, it, it could very well be taken that way. 
Um, to make matters worse, in an interview, Michael Stipe, the writer of the song, straight up says what the song is about has nothing to do with religion. So if not losing religion, something many people around the globe can resonate with, what is this song about that captured the hearts of its listeners? In another interview, Stipe breaks down, thankfully, in detail the meaning of the song when he wrote it. So starting with the title, Losing My Religion is connecting to the phrase from the American South, lost my religion, a phrase the band members most likely heard all the time having grown up in Georgia. And it's a phrase that means being or getting frustrated or angry with someone or something. And this ranges from, you know, the simple frustrations of, say, getting wet while you're running from your house to your car, to, though, a very visceral reaction to something in the heat of the moment where it does feel like you might lose, perhaps not your religion, but emotional control. Stipe continues by stating that the song has nothing to do with religion, but it's, and I quote, a song about unrequited love, of holding back and reaching forward, then pulling back again, then reaching forward. You never know if the person I'm reaching out for is aware of me, if they know that I exist. Seeing and hearing the seemingly nonsensical lyrics through the lens of unrequited love all of a sudden brings so much sense. The first two verses go, Oh, life is bigger. It's bigger than you. And you are not me. The lengths that I will go. Oh no, I've said too much. I set it up. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. Trying to keep up with you. And I don't know if I can do it. Oh no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. This is a song about loving and desiring another who perhaps doesn't love or desire them back. And the lyrics themselves reel us back and forth as it puts to words the very real emotional and mental experience we go through when we love someone but don't know if they love us back, or worse, when we know that they don't. Like Stipe mentioned, the best songs allow for any listener to find themselves in it and what's more universally understood but love and desire. And it's this human experience we're going to look at this morning. Now, desire and love can be, can be very tricky because at times they can be very loaded words or very ambiguous. Depending how uh, and where you grew up, desire can be viewed as overtly bad. Or growing up in an English-speaking country like Canada, the word love is so ambiguous. I tell my wife that I love her, but I can turn around and say that I love pizza. Despite these issues, the reality is that desire and love fundamentally drive us as human beings. And both desire and love are intricately connected to each other. When we desire something, we typically act on that 
desire. And the more we act on that desire, the more we learn to love the very thing that we desire. And to desire isn't wrong. My desire to satisfy my hunger leads me to eat and not starve to death. When I met my wife for the first time, I didn't love her, but I did desire to spend more time with her. And as I acted on that and started dating and spending more time with her, I grew to love her. To desire and to love is human. And this is a premise that is expanded upon in Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith's book, You Are What You Love. As human beings, we are hardwired to desire and love. However, these things aren't simply neutral in our lives, things we can just engage in with little to no effect on us. Smith states that we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Whatever or whoever it is we are desiring and spending time with begins to shape us as we become more and more like that which we desire, hence the title, You Are What You Love. And we can see this happening on very basic levels. Take, for example, growing in just a simple relationship with someone. The more time we spend with that person, the more we begin to look and sound like them. A few months into my dating relationship with my, with my wife, Krista was over for dinner with my family, and after she had left, I remember my mom making a comment uh, to me that Krista was starting to say certain things in a, in a similar way to how I said them, and that I had picked up and started uh, using phrases that she normally used. To my mom, this was the telltale signs that Krista and I clearly spent and enjoyed time together. We started becoming like the person we loved. Again, to desire and love is to be human. Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard in an interview stated that desire itself is not bad. God has desires. However, he continues stating that, but in human beings, they have been malformed and twisted so that you must always be suspicious of desires even desires for holiness. And we see this, this twisting of human desire in the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve are being tempted in Genesis 3. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve that if they eat the fruit from the tree of good and evil, their eyes will be opened and they will become like God. And after this, we get a really great peek into Eve's mind in verse 6, where it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, the issue in this story is not Adam and Eve's desire to become like God. To desire to become like God 
isn't necessarily wrong. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Humans were and are meant to be like God, displaying his way of life and goodness to the world. This is why followers of Jesus are called to become more and more like Jesus and why Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 to 24 say to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The temptation in front of Adam and Eve wasn't to become like God. It was to become like God by removing themselves from his will and plan for them by disobeying him. Of eating from a tree he said not to eat from. And so even desires for holiness, as Willard says, must be viewed with suspicion. Elsewhere, Dallas Willard expressed that desire is deceitful because it promises satisfaction if it gets its way. In Losing My Religion, we're seeing desire's promise that life will be better if only that person loved you back. For the rest of us, it can be an infinite range of things promising the good life. More money, more stuff, more education, more scrolling, more watching, whatever. But we all know that whenever we scratch our desire's itch, we're left not nearly as satisfied or filled as it had initially promised and what we had hoped for. And I think the reason behind this has been summed up beautifully by St. Augustine, a 5th century philosopher, theologian, and bishop from North Africa, when in a prayer to God he said, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We've been made to desire after one thing, right relationship with God, but spend our time chasing after other desires that at best leave us unsatisfied and restless and at worst does damage to our souls. And so we live in a world where our dominant culture says, follow your desires, and yet a God that says, follow me. And it's this competition that is at the heart of our discipleship to Jesus. In John chapter 1, Jesus asks one of the most fundamental questions, starting in verse 35. It says, the next day again, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Or the NIV and other translations like it say, What do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Jesus asks the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? What is it you desire? 
And he's not asking this like some cosmic genie ready to give whatever it is we desire. He's starting the journey of discipleship. This is actually why I personally prefer the ESV translation and others like it that translate that section of text as what are you seeking? Because I feel this implies a journey. And the answer you get to a question like this is a path or a direction. And that beautifully sets the expectation of a life following Jesus, a life made up of little steps that take us either closer or further from God. One commentator states that the language of John chapter 1 verse 38 is consciously designed to describe discipleship, to follow, to come and see, and to stay or remain. And notice the disciples' answer to the question, what are you seeking? They, they, all they want to know is, where is Jesus staying? Presumably, their desire is simply to get to know Jesus better. They don't answer the question by saying to know how to get into heaven or to figure out who the Messiah is or even to see the downfall of Rome, Israel's oppressor at the time. It was simply to know where he was staying, which leads Jesus to say, come and see, or in other words, follow me. And there they stayed with him the rest of the day and really the rest of their lives as these men were Andrew and who many scholars believe to be John, two of the 12 future apostles of Jesus. And really, it's, it's this staying or remaining with Jesus that is and should be the primary goal and desire of a follower of Jesus. Or to put it how it's expressed in John chapter 15, to abide in him. This chapter is part of what's called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is teaching and encouraging his disciples at the Last Supper right before he's killed. And using the popular Jewish metaphor of a vineyard, Jesus continues teaching and reminding them what it means to be one of his disciples. So starting uh, at verse 1 in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Our call 
as followers of Jesus is to abide in him. To recognize that the truly good life is found in Jesus and to be utterly dependent on him and no other desire. Because when we rely on any other desire, we become, like it says, a branch that withers and dies because we can do nothing apart from him. But when we abide in Jesus, the process of transformation can begin. Like mentioned previously, we become what or who we desire and spend time with, and this is no different in our relationship with Jesus. When we spend more time with him, when we abide in him, we desire to do so more and more, and it's time spent in his presence and putting into practice his way of life that the Holy Spirit brings our loves and longings into alignment with his. To quote James K.A. Smith again, we begin to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. When we abide in Jesus, we become more and more like him and will inevitably bear the real refreshing and nourishing fruit that God wants to grow in us for the sake of the world. So, how, how do we abide in Jesus 2,000 plus years after he said this in a way that will allow the Holy Spirit to prune and curate our desires and loves to be more aligned with his? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are to mirror a life of love like Jesus. And the early church fathers and mothers and many church leaders today argue that we do this through incorporating classic spiritual practices into our lives. Some of which are silence and solitude, Sabbath, prayer, and scripture reading. And we'll look very briefly at each and how the Spirit can use them to reorient our desires. And by no means is this an exhaustive list. There's, there's plenty more, but these are some, some very crucial core ones. Silence and solitude is one of the simplest, yet one of the hardest practices to do because we are so used to both internal and external noise and distraction. This practice requires us to create a time and space to simply be alone in the quiet before God. And this doesn't have to be very long. If it's new to some of you, it, it could just be at the minimum a couple minutes at the start or end of your day simply inviting the Holy Spirit to draw you into the presence of God and just sit and be still with no agenda and no judgment on ourselves for sitting in the quiet, which can and certainly will be awkward at times. However, practicing silence and solitude creates the habit of switching off in a world that is constantly switched on and attempting to stoke alternative desires in us. Sabbath is simply a regular setting aside of an entire day, if you can, to rest 
and enjoy the good things God has given you. It's also a day to remember that our world doesn't run because of us and our work in it, but is sustained by God alone. It's a day that fights against the desire to work a little more and to earn a little more because ultimately our fulfillment doesn't come from what we do or contribute to society and our rest doesn't come from our vacation or our retirement, but both only come from God and who we are in him. Prayer is intentional time conversing with God. This isn't time meant to just dump our list of requests onto him and hope that he'll answer them to make our lives easier, although there, there is space for that. But it's also a time to listen, to ask God what it is we should be doing today, who we should look to encourage and help, how we can be used to advance his kingdom and see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a time to pray for and forgive our enemies in a time where all the world wants us to do is cancel them. Concerning prayer, Dallas Willard said, prayer is talking with God about what we are doing together. Ultimately, prayer invites us to walk in step with what God is doing in us and around us as we join him in the redeeming work he is doing in our world. And finally, reading and studying scripture immerses ourselves into God's story. Studies have actually shown that as human beings, our brains are hardwired to think in narrative, to think in story. And this is why some of the most compelling ads are, say, narrative-driven rather than product-driven. This is why so many of the most popular social and political ideologies captivate their followers by immersing them in the story of what they believe the good life is and how we can attain it. We live in a world with countless stories being told, all of which are attempting to draw us in, desire after, and love whatever it is they're putting in front of us. With alternative stories being so prevalent, it's crucial then to immerse ourselves regularly and continually in the one story that truly leads to life. Desire and love are universal human experiences, and it's why the song Losing My Religion resonated with so many people. And once again, to desire and love is good. However, when we desire anything or anyone else above God, it's easy to see how we're living in the world we are right now. We become what we love, whether that's a person, a lifestyle, a product, an ideology, you name it. But when we make intentional time for the reading of scripture, for prayer, for Sabbath, silence and solitude, and put into practice the life of and love of Jesus, we are abiding in him. And it's in this abiding that the Holy Spirit can begin and continue to reorient our twisted desires as we start to then desire after and love what God does. And in so doing, we become more and more like Jesus, the person we are called to ultimately desire and love. 
To conclude our time together, we're going to go into a time of communion. And really, I can think of no other fitting way to end our time this morning as we seek to abide with Jesus this week than by sitting in his presence taking communion. If you'd like to participate from home, feel free right now to go and prepare your communion elements, something to eat like a piece of bread or some crackers and something to drink. Before we take communion, though, this is a perfect opportunity to reflect on the desires and loves that are shaping us and to ask the question, am I becoming more like Jesus through them or not? The worship team is going to play a song, and during that time, let Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 be your guiding prayer. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it and gave it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat. This is my body. Let's eat as we remember Jesus' sacrifice together. Continuing in verse 27, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink as we remember the way of Jesus together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for breaking the hold of deceitful desires through Jesus' sacrifice. Forgive us for seeking things other than you in our lives. We turn from them and follow you. Holy Spirit, reveal our desires that only leave us unsatisfied and lead us and shape us to desire what you desire and to love what you love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you can, stand with me. In ancient times, the one who blessed raised their hands, and the one who wanted a blessing did likewise. Soul Sanctuary, a blessing from Ephesians chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, may you put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now go and be the church, and we'll see you next week.